One of the things I've been doing recently is looking back a little bit, looking back at some of the of some of the teachings that uh, we have given here for over the last number of years. Not all of the teachings have been have been placed up on podcasts, and I've been looking back and reviewing some of them, especially those going back eight, nine, ten years or more. And basically, it's a kind of review or inventory. And basically, I'm asking the question, uh, what does this sound like now? What was being said then? What does it look like now? The reason for doing this is that we have been, we've entered into a period of time of uh, for the battle of the mind. It's always been the battle in the realm of spiritual things has always involved a battle for the mind, a battle for thinking. But this is, um, this is at a new level now, I think a level never before experienced or seldom before experienced, the battle for the mind. And I see people's opinions swaying on so many different things. And there are some constants and then there are some things that are temporary. And my sense is that when we how we interpret the scriptures should not be temporary, should not fall into that category of temporary. Therefore, when I listen to something that, for example, even I have said, 10, 20, not 20, but 10, 15 years ago, I'm asking myself, what does that sound like now? Does that hold up over time? If you were driving your vehicle and you were coming to a bridge, and you, no, you noticed the bridge was swaying, swaying. Obviously, you would not drive on the bridge. You would stop. You would know something was wrong. That bridge should not be swaying. You uh, wouldn't drive on it because you would not be able to trust it. And when there are opinions offered that are subject to constant change or opinions that seem valid in one moment but do not appear valid after a period of time has passed, then we don't trust those either. So I'm looking back with that kind of uh, thought in mind of how trustworthy are the things that were said years ago. Uh, for example, I'm looking at a, a presentation I gave on Sunday morning. It was the 29th day of August 2010. My father's funeral was held the day previous. And I'll begin in that Sunday morning, I began by sharing a few thoughts with regard to my father. It's interesting to me now to go back and listen to that because quite a bit of that has, uh, I think, relevance to the series on Pentecost that we just finished. And so I'm comparing some of the things said then in terms of some of the things said during the recent series on Pentecost, and do they differ, are they the same, these kinds of things. And what, how does this presentation from the 29th day of August 2010, what does that sound like now? And does that carry any benefit to us now? What does it look like 10 years later? What does it sound like 10 years later? This period of time that we are in, is such a time of instability in terms of thinking and thoughts, the battle for the mind, 
and we need to be on very solid ground. And as we present teaching, it must be capable of surviving the test of time. Not only must it appear solid ten years ago, but it must appear solid today. And if it does not stand the test of time, then we need to reevaluate a great deal of a great deal of things, a great many things. So with some of that as a bit of a background, let me let me present to you this morning a presentation I gave here at Key Waden on Sunday, Sunday morning, August twenty ninth. 2010. My father left us at the age of 92. My mother was still here and she would stay and remain with us for almost a year uh, after that. But nevertheless, uh, my dad was 92 years old and he had just passed away on the 25th day of the month of August of that year. We had his funeral on the Saturday three days later. This presentation from this morning is one day, that is, again, Sunday morning, one day after his funeral. That's a little bit of an explanation for the subject that I've chosen in remembering, and again, it is remembering my father with my father. As you might imagine, I haven't had a great deal of time to think about uh, uh, Sunday morning. That's probably why you saw the little yellow bug sitting over under the tree this morning. Uh, in any event, I um, um, thought maybe I'd begin by sharing just something about uh, Dad. As we all know, we, yesterday we uh, we had Dad's funeral. Yesterday, as, as we all know, and uh, just maybe the day or so after Dad had passed away. And it's hard to believe anyone who's ever, we've never experienced this before. So, in terms of the death of a parent. So, you know, you don't, you can really uh, sympathize and understand others who have experienced that. It's, uh, there's, it's, it's kind of a feeling that uh, you can't describe. And when you see someone who has uh, experienced it, then you know, well, that person already has experienced what I'm feeling, and they know what I'm feeling, even though I can't describe it. So a day or so after uh, Dad, and we know that uh, that when our loved ones who who are in Christ and know Christ uh, uh, and right relationship with God through through Jesus, that they go to be with the Lord at the moment of physical death. And so when we uh, have funeral services, we know they are not there. We know they're with the Lord and all these things, but still we miss them. So it really didn't dawn on me right away. It doesn't dawn. My mom said several times, you know, she said the reality of this hasn't sunk in yet. I, 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 she knows the reality hasn't sunk in yet. And so I'm talking the way we feel as sons, but the way mom would feel is something I can't completely apprehend. Neither can she. It comes in little bits at a time. But it was while I was eating a cob of corn that... Uh, it really started to filter down. Uh, Pat had purchased some corn, and we prepared the corn, and, and I began to eat the cob of corn. And when I began to eat the cob of corn, then my mind was flooded with memories of Dad and the unique, unique way that he would uh, approach a cob of corn. Dad was, uh, uh, wh- what should I say? Dad was a professional 
consumer of food. Yeah. He had a way, even with um, scalloped potatoes. And mom used to make scalloped potatoes. You know, they would take milk on the milk and put it on the stove and destroy it, boil it. And then they would pour that into the potatoes and just absolutely, you know. Um, anyway. Ruin. Yeah, ruin. So, so I never did that. Right. So, perfect. And then along came cream of mushroom soup and saved the whole operation. But, but before the advent of cream of mushroom soup, anyway. So that was a profound. He could he could he could almost make that scalloped potatoes look appetizing. So I watched Dad eat scalped or scalloped potatoes, and I think, oh, they can't be that bad. It looks so good. Anyway, a cobble point had this unique way. So all these memories begin to flood and filter down. And you might remember Mom talking a little bit something yesterday about in her memories of coal oil lamps hanging in a church and so on. So when we were boys, um, you know, we didn't have electricity in our home. Forget about uh, flush toilets. We had a toilet outside, about 400 feet or so from the house. And there was no flush involved, I can tell you that. And so no electricity, no running water, we had a well. We had to uh, you know, put the pail, we didn't even have a pump on that thing from time to time. We'd put the pail down and pull the water up and take it in. And she'd heat water on the stove and uh, so on. So I'm trying to say we were really deprived. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this was before the advent of a lot of these things that now we take for granted. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. Can you imagine today, so we had no electricity, no electricity, no electric stove, no iron. Mom would heat the iron up on the stove to iron the shirts. And had to be, she had to be very careful, she didn't overheat the iron because then you know what would happen to the shirt? Scorch the shirt. And so, uh, if uh, we think about how fussy some of these seniors can be, these ladies can be, it's because they had to be that way in order to make everything work right. They had to be just exact. And so in any event, all of these things, but can you imagine today to live like that today with all the provisions that we have today? I can't tell you the number of times my dad would look at that little thermostat on the wall that you could raise or lower temperature in the house and look at that little knob, little thermostat and say, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to go out and cut wood or split wood for that. And he was so thankful of that. But can you imagine today living as if we had no provisions like electricity and electric lights and, and electric stoves and dryers and all the things we have, uh, means of communication, telephones. I remember when the telephone first came into our house. And so when we transfer that idea over to spiritual things, sometimes we live as though the Lord had not provided certain things in His atonement. In other words, we don't take advantage of all the provision that He has made. And so what I'd like to say this morning and as we begin is that, uh, first of all, we need to come to a realization of what He has provided for us. And to be sure within ourselves and confident that the Lord has provided this. And this is just not some preacher or some Bible teacher that is saying that the Lord has done something or said something or promised something that He in fact has not. So we have to know there is we have to be confident this is the Word. 
that this is the right approach to the word, that we understand what the Lord has provided. Now on the day of Pentecost, which was the beginning of really the church age, the day of Pentecost, there was a most marvelous provision that was given. And we understand from Scripture that the provision was not temporary provision, that it was to be a permanent provision provided for the church until the very end of the age. Not just for the beginning of the age, but right through to the very end of the age. And this was the promise of the Father that Jesus referred to in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. We've been discussing this for several weeks. And he said uh, that um, the promise of the Father that you have heard me discuss with you or talk with you about. And he said, not many days from now, just before the ascension, he said, not many days from now, you will receive this promise of the Father, promised in Joel, the Old Testament prophet. Then in another place, I believe in John's Gospel, the Lord Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he is presenting all of this as if when the Holy Spirit comes, uh, he will come to you in a relationship with you that you have never experienced before. And he would say that the closest analogy to the relationship you'll have with the Holy Spirit when he comes will be the relationship that he himself had with. When the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in his, after his water baptism, the time of his water baptism, and rested upon him and remained upon him. Then he would say that everything he did in terms of the great miracles that he did, he said, the Father does or, or doeth, he, he does those in me. I, as Jesus of Nazareth, did not do these, but the Father does those in and through me. And he said there would be a similar relationship that the Holy Spirit would do these things through the believer after the day of Pentecost. And so we live in a time of this great provision. And so he said uh, in John's Gospel, whom I will send unto you. And then he said that if I do not go away, that he, the Comforter, who is also the Holy Spirit, he cannot come unless I go away. We know that what Jesus was saying is that uh, in his death and uh, resurrection and ascension and high priestly office, that he would prepare the way and make it possible and right for the Holy Spirit to come in baptismal measure upon human beings who would believe in him. So preparing the way is, is not just simply a carnal or natural preparing some place that people would live in when they die. But it was preparing a way to come into right fellowship with the Father. Fulfilling all of the Old Testament types. And so, uh, on the day of Pentecost, this began to be fulfilled. Now, I had a question I thought I would ask you. If someone were to travel, go on a trip to, you, you know, Hawaii, or where would you like to go? Would you like to go to Europe? Anybody like to go to Europe? Any place you would like to go on a trip? Vacation. And then uh, you would say to your loved ones here on St. Joseph Island, when I get there, Hawaii, do I see any Hawaii's in there? <laughs> I know there's one sitting here that refuses to raise her hand. <laughs> That's going to Hawaii and I'm going to go to St. Joseph Island. No. <laughs> um, when, when, and, and they said, when I arrive there, I'm going to send you a postcard from there. And so as time passes and a few days later you receive in the mail you receive a postcard with a great picture of Hawaii and 
postmark, the little stamp says, you know, Hawaii. And so then, what do you assume? What do you what do you assume? What do you know? You say within yourself, "That's in Hawaii." That's right, Gerda. That's in Hawaii. In other words, you you say, "Well, they arrived. I know they arrived. How do you know they arrived? Did you get a phone call? No." But they said when they arrived, they would send this postcard to me. That the postcard would be the evidence that they had arrived. And then, sure enough, here on the postcard is stamped, you know, Hawaii, and it's a picture of uh, some signature place in Hawaii. And so you say, well, they arrived. I know they arrived because they promised to send this, and now they have sent it, and I know they arrived. In the same way, in a similar way, the coming of the Holy Spirit in baptismal measure is the biblical evidence beyond all others in a sense. The fact that everything that Jesus promised to do when he said it is finished on the cross, that it has been finished, that he has, and it is in the presence of the Father, and in the very presence of the Father as the great high priest, he has sent the promise of the Father to us, whom I will send unto you, he said. And so, these are uh, the provisions of the New Testament age, is the provision of the anointing uh, and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 9. <coughs> Acts chapter 9. And I just wanted to briefly address a few verses. And I have a little note on my page in front of me that says uh, Damascus. You know where Damascus is? Damascus in Syria now? Yeah. Damascus, and I have this little note that says the journey to and the escape from. And so there was a time when Saul of Tarsus, he journeyed to Damascus. And I want to say this morning there was a tremendous distinction and difference between Saul as he journeyed to Damascus and Saul as he left Damascus. Uh, just a tremendous transformation in the man. Virtually unbelievable change from a human standpoint. Only a change that could be brought about by a life-changing experience of the most profound kind. And this is what happened to him. Totally revolutionizing his life. Now, if I were, if I were to say... We have to get all this thing cleared up first before we can talk. If I were to say to you this morning that Saul... Tarsus was a renowned, well-known atheist of his day. How would you respond to that? You would say, what? <laughs> he was not an atheist. He was a very religious man. He was raised from a very young age, well, as a youth, at the feet of one of the leading teachers in uh, Judaism, named Gamaliel. He was not an atheist. He was a believer in God. He was an Israelite. And then he persecuted the, the church. And he per persecuted the way. And he threatened them and he put them in prison. The believers in Jesus. And he persecuted them with a ferocity that was uh, almost unbelievable. And he wanted to go to Damascus. And so he went to the church leadership in Jerusalem and he said, give me basically warrants of arrest and authorize me to go to Damascus and go into all the synagogues in Damascus and to arrest anyone I find that is following Jesus or this the way of Christ. 
and authorized me to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem from Damascus in chains and send me men with send men with me that would be able to assist me in executing these warrants of arrest and with this in mind he journeyed on his way to Damascus and no one persecuted the early New Testament church with a greater enthusiasm and dedication than did Saul of Tarsus then as he journeyed the scripture tells us that he came to a certain place and he saw a great light shone around him from heaven in verse 3 and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? and he said who are you Lord? then the Lord said I am Jesus whom you are persecuting it is hard for you to kick against, uh, to kick against the goads and so trembling and astonished he said Lord what do you want me to do? then the Lord said to him arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do the men who journeyed with him stood speechless hearing a voice but seeing no one they heard a sound but they didn't really hear the articulate speech of the voice they didn't see the light that Saul saw in verse 8 it tells us that when Saul arose from the ground his eyes were opened but he couldn't see anyone and they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus for three days he was without sight and he didn't eat or drink and I find that really a profound thing he did not eat or drink for three days. And you know what he did during that three days? Is He went to prayer. And this is a, an example of prayer and fasting that is, uh, I suppose you could say, could be engaged by a man who was a very zealous person by nature, as was Saul of Tarsus. It's one thing to go without food for three days. Anyone can do that. But to go without drink for three days... And so as we proceed through chapter 9, then the scripture tells us that the Lord himself appeared, revealed himself to a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And told basically Ananias where Saul of Tarsus was and he should go there. And he should lay his hands on him that he might receive his sight. And he said he's praying there. Told him where to go. And in a vision, Saul has seen you come in and lay your hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Ananias was reluctant because he, uh, Saul was, was uh, very notorious. And the Lord said, uh, you can go. Um, he said in verse 15, the Lord said, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the, ch- and the children of Israel. How could this be the man that would be such a persecutor of the church would be a chosen instrument of the Lord and yet he was Saul would later say as we knew him then by Paul towards the after his conversion that he was separated from his mother's womb or from his very birth to be a great apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet he conducted himself in this manner in this way of oppressing the Lord uh, during this period of time. And how many people are like that today who are out there in the highways and byways of this world that we would think about naturally as people that are just totally without hope and look at them and say, even scornfully, and look at them and say, you know, these people not only are not believers, but they are 
haters of believers. How many people are like that? And do we need sometimes to have our eyes opened ourselves to realize that the Lord has his hand on certain instruments, and those instruments are people, and he puts his hand on that person before that person is even born with a calling on that person's life. He does. And will reveal himself. And I believe we need to pray that the Lord will reveal himself to those whom he has called, regardless of who those people will be. But the tragedy of organized religion oftentimes becomes stayed in a certain uh, form and refuses to recognize those whom the Lord calls when he calls them. So there was a tremendous change between uh, within Saul of Tarsus from the time he enters Damascus until the time he leaves. He immediately after his conversion and after his sight is restored, and this is a great uh, testimony to the idea that when a person comes to Christ, the old way of seeing things is radically transformed and a new way of seeing and a new vision, a new eyes revelation is given to the individual. And so we see this literally in, in, uh, in Paul's experience. He immediately began to minister in the name of the Lord and uh, speak with great power that Jesus was the Christ. You know what they wanted to do immediately with him after he began to speak so convincingly about uh, Jesus as the Messiah? Is those very ones in Damascus um, that Paul was going to go to uh, with letters, you know, to arrest and so on? All his former uh, compatriots, fellow Jews. Uh, when he began to preach Jesus as the Messiah, they began to turn against him. And they began to turn against him with such a ferocity that they wanted to uh, kill him, take his life. And so those with him, of course, they realized this and they, uh, during the night, because even the religious leaders in Damascus, Paul's former friends and compatriots, were waiting at the gates of the city. As soon as he leaves through a gate of the city, we will follow him and we will slay him or kill him. Can you imagine this? And so those who were very close and traveling with him uh, found a place in the wall of the city where he could be released in a basket during the night. And they lowered him down in a basket during the night from a place in the wall of the city. And he was able to effect his uh, escape from Damascus. And this morning I simply wanted to take a few moments just to point out some of these things from Scripture that show us the radical change and transformation that happens to an individual who comes to know Christ and who receives, because he received, when he received his sight back through the laying on of the hands of Ananias, he also received, Ananias, he also received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And after he received the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we believe to be in baptismal measure, he began immediately to see all of the scriptures he had learned all of his life, but to see them in an eye-opening way. And only the Holy Spirit can give that gift. And so he had been using the scriptures to oppress. Now he's using the scriptures to teach that Jesus is the Messiah. And he goes to Damascus as a leader of the Jews, reverenced and held in high regard by all, and he leaves 
Damascus on their death list. The cost of discipleship is pointed out here. And I'm going to simply uh, pause at, uh, at this point this morning. When I return uh, next week, Lord willing, we will be more prepared to continue on our uh, series on the same vein, same thought. I don't believe we should leave this uh, yet, and we will continue. But I simply this morning want to share just a few um, insights that come to us from this ninth chapter of the book of Acts and the change in the life of Saul of Tarsus that we refer to and know as Paul the Apostle. A tremendous radical transformation. And to remind us all this morning again of the provision that has been made that I believe is much greater than any of us knows. And why should we live in the, you know, without all the electricity and and all of those things that we have and now that it's here. And then the same thing in the spiritual life. Why should we live as if the Lord had not provided certain things for us when the scripture tells us that in fact he has provided those things for us? And so we again to to be sure we do not want ever to go beyond what the Lord has provided, but why should we not um, why should we not receive, why should we not desire uh, desire, why should we not um, fervently ask Him to give to us all that He has provided. Why should we function in this world? Why should we attempt to minister in His name? Why should we attempt to witness in His name without the equipping and without the provision that He has made possible for us? Amen. I'll leave you with that question this time. We'll continue our thoughts as we uh, proceed next week.